So the number one thing you must, above all other things, make sure your gun is zeroed. That is the number one thing I see guys failing on. So I can have a, you know, $10,000 rifle with a $5,000 scope shooting $4 shot ammo with a, you know, I had a $10,000 rangefinder at one time. Like I can have all of the best equipment with a $40,000 thermal on the front. If that gun's not zeroed, all of it is worthless. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Here's the situation. Okay. Daniel Horner. <laughs> yes, sir. You're walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Van pulls up next to you. Okay. I jump out, grab you. Black bag over the head in the van you go. Oh, like last week. Like last week. <laughs> okay, good. Right? So we take off. We're driving, we're driving, we're driving. Mm-hmm. And then we stop. Okay. You have no idea where we are or what the conditions are. And I say to you, Daniel Horner. What is the maximum range that you bet $1,000 and your life that you will hit a 10-inch steel target in these conditions, which you do not know? 300 yards. 300 yards. Yep. Given, given my choice of gun? Um, given a hunting rifle, the rifle that you hunt with. I guarantee it at 300 yards. Okay. It'd be very difficult to get a set of circumstances that I couldn't pull that off short of fog or something. Blowing, <laughs> blowing snow. <laughs> we did it in a 30 mile an hour uh, wind yesterday. So, um, What about you, Jordan? Uh, I'm going to roll her back to 200. That's where I'm at. Yeah. That's where I'm at. I'm interested in this, this $1,000 challenge. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when I talk with people about it, they play it pretty conservatively and they play it much more conservatively than they play it with an animal's life. Because when they're putting a hunt on the line and they're shooting at an animal, they will stretch it out farther than that. Yeah. Which means that they're putting less than a thousand dollars of value on an animal's life. Yeah. I go the other way, man. Yeah, I really do. Like I'll, I'll miss a steel plate. With the best of them, sure. I've done it more than more than once. I'll do it more than once, probably tomorrow. But yeah, with an animal, I I can't tell you the last time I took a shot and it didn't go right where I wanted it to. Yeah. And it's just it's just it's not because of the skill of shooting. It's that it's the shot selection. Like I just won't pull the trigger unless I know what's going to happen. I'm going to put you in in an uncomfortable spot. Okay. And it's going to be an uncomfortable spot because. You are a humble guy. But for our distinguished audience, would you tell us some of your shooting accomplishments? Uh, yeah. Um, I uh, have won two pistol world titles and two pistol national titles. Uh, I've won 12 USPSA multi-gun national titles and um, every sniper competition I've entered except the one I was second with. So, yeah. 
and done a lot of shooting. What are some of those sniper competitions? The uh, international sniper competition I won twice. We won the USASOC Special Operations Sniper Competition. Um, we won Mammoth Sniper Competition four times, I think, and that was all with my partner Tyler Payne. And then uh, me and my wife actually won the Mammoth Sniper Competition, and then we finished second. And that was when we we kind of called it off because my wife was done being uh, cold, wet, and hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so she was like, well, we were finished second by one point. That's good enough for me. <laughs> we can let it go. Yeah. So I said, okay. Well, you know, your your wife is a Marine, so I'm pretty sure that that point that got dropped was on, on your gun. So. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long have you been competing? 21 years. So what actually. did it look like when you started competing? You're a kid. Yeah, I was 12 years old. Um, as far as the mental aspect or the, like, what did it feel like or what, what was I doing or? Sure. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I was a 12 year old kid, so I, uh, I grew up hunting with my dad. I started carrying a gun when I was six and, um, got my first duck when I was six with a single shot, 20 gauge shotgun. It was a black duck at about 30 yards coming in from the left. One of my proudest shots I've ever made. Um, and then, uh, my dad actually he owned a veterinary clinic and he got robbed so the guy walked into the the clinic with a revolver and just stuck it right in his face and started robbing everybody and he had a glock in the drawer that he was standing at um but he couldn't get to it because the guy walked in with a gun and uh so he brought him into the uh the waiting room and the guy went around started robbing everybody and he asked for the cash drawer and so they gave him the little cash box, and when he laid the gun down to, to open the cash box, my dad jumped on him and with uh, another one, his kind of right-hand guy, Ben. Um, they they forcefully subdued him and uh, turned him over to the cops, and my dad was like, well, I'm never going to be without a, a gun in a situation like that again. So he started, he started carrying a uh, gun in his pocket, and he's like, well, if I've got this, I don't want to have a gun and not know how to use it. So we started going to the local IDPA competitions and they, you know, I'm 11 year old kid at that time. You know, I sat in the back and stayed quiet and picked up brass and scored targets and taped targets and stayed out of everybody's way and didn't talk because I was 11 year old kid. So after that, I'd kind of, you know, built a reputation of not being a knucklehead. They let me shoot my first competition because I would go and practice with my dad. And so, like I said, I was 12 when that kicked off and, you know, you're young and it's pretty dynamic sport. So I had a, a tough time overcoming some of the stress of it because you got all these guys looking at you and you're doing something pretty high profile and it's, it, you're trying to do it as quickly as possible. So I had a lot of like, um, the mental side of it to overcome when I was that age. And then when I was, uh, I worked at it and, you know, people talk about like, Oh, I dry fired. I would literally dry fired six hours a day pretty much every day I was homeschooled. So I would study and dry fire all day. And, um, then I started working on a range when I was 13. Uh, so I would do my schoolwork in the morning and then my mom would go and drop me off and I would work, you know, painting steel and moving steel and picking brass and sorting brass and loading ammo and whatever, you know, whatever everybody else didn't want to do. And, uh, so I did that basically until, and I started teaching as soon as I got good enough that I could provide value. I started, uh, 
teaching and did that until I joined the army. But when I was, I guess I was 17, 16 or 17, I won my first IDPA national championship. And that was a really cool thing for me because we were going into the last stage and one of the guys, really, really good shooter had shot earlier uh, with the ROs because he had to go do something. He, I think he was a, a LE guy and he had to get back to work or something, but he shot the match with the range staff before the main match kicked off and he was actually winning the match. And so we go through this whole thing and, uh, I remember like, I'm like 16, 16 or 17 years old. I don't remember. Um, going into the last stage was the biggest chunk of the points. Like 30% of the points was on this last stage. And I remember, uh, Rob Latham walked over and he's like, Hey man, you know, I can't win, but, uh, this is what I would do here. You know, cause basically he was saying like, you know, he, he had, he, there's no way that he could shoot good enough in that moment to, to pull out the win. And he was going to willing to give me his thoughts on how to, how to shoot the stage and everything. And, um, that was, that was something that's pretty cool. I mean, the dude's got, I don't know, 30 national titles. Like he's, he's been doing this since the, the eighties. And, uh, that was a moment that really stood out to me. And then, um, joined the, the army marksmanship unit after I'd won those two nationals. That's what gave me a chance to go try out. So really long answer to your question but oh it's gonna get longer yet okay. we're just getting started <laughs> so the army recruited you yeah to shoot for them right so the way it worked uh I, I wanted to join the army either way um but you know my parents like i said they'd they'd put they had invested so much into me at that point like i i wanted to see how far it could go you know because i was getting to where you know, I was doing pretty well. I was, I'd won a couple of nationals and, you know, I was doing well on the, the training side of it and everything. And I was like, well, this would be, this would be great. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll go over to Ranger Regiment or I'll do whatever it is that I wanted to do anyway. And, um, so they, the process was you go down there for a week and you try out and I worked my way up, you know, fast forward 10 years, I actually was running that team. And the way I looked at it when we brought guys in for tryouts, it, it wasn't a, an assessment of their shooting ability, right? I've got results from five years to see how well you can shoot. It's, you know, are you a good person? You know, it's stuff we can't teach, right? You can't teach integrity. You can't teach, you know, some is, is the guy going to quit? You know, is he going to be there when he's cold, wet, and hungry to support the teammates? Is he a guy that you can go spend, you know, 250 days away from home a year and be around? And so that's what they were doing to me, making sure that they could hang out with me and not get tired of me. Mm-hmm. And um, they offered me the job, so I came into the Army, did uh, OSA one-station unit training. So I came in, went to infantry school, and then went to the team from there. So what does life look like on the Army Marksmanship Unit? Uh, it depends. There's uh, six or seven teams. They, they kind of go back and forth. But um, there's a... A shotgun team, all they do is shoot competition. They're, they're Olympic-level shotgun shooters. Uh, same thing for the international uh, teams. And then you have a service rifle and a service pistol team. They do the across-the-course high-power stuff or the bullseye pistol competitions. And those two teams will do a little bit of select training from time to time. Um, and then you had uh, the action shooting team and the instructor training group. And so the instructor training group basically did nothing but teach big army and they were very busy i mean they were tdy probably 
or they, so they were temporary duty. So that means they were leaving Fort Benning and going somewhere else to train another group of soldiers, probably 200 days a year, which is a lot. Um, and then we had the action team. So we did both the competition and the training side. So we would, uh, I would say I spent about half the time competing or developing myself or the guys as competitors and half the time actually going out and teaching, um, specialized courses. So it would be either be, you know, close range rifle, close range pistol, or some type of sniper rifle class. And a lot of our, our sniper rifle classes were more on, it, it wasn't necessarily the extreme long range stuff. Cause I mean, we could all do it, but it was more on like the practical application of a sniper rifle. Like if you got a, a target between 400 and 800, this is the fastest and best way to get rounds on target quickly. So let's talk about for a second, what a sniper rifle actually is. Because I think that sniper is one of the least understood words amongst military professions. And sniper rifle has been so distorted by Hollywood, by video games. Um, You know, most people see a dude like on a rooftop screwing a gun together last minute and that's (laughs) a sniper rifle or they see a big scope and that's a sniper rifle. What's a sniper rifle? What's that even look like? So... It's funny you ask that because what it means to me is, is, is it shouldn't be sniper rifle. It should be sniper's rifle. Any rifle that a sniper picks up is a sniper's rifle. That dude has a capability. It's not the gun that gives him that capability. It's the dude that understands what to do. So it's just like there is no assault rifle. There are assaulter's rifles and there are sniper's rifles. But just the inanimate object means nothing. So I can hand a dude a sniper rifle that most people would look at, or it's labeled a sniper rifle in the army system. And I can hand it to most people and they have no idea what to do with it. So it's not, it has nothing to do to me. It has nothing to do with the gun so much as it has to do with the guy and what that guy's capabilities are. Like you can hand, you know, my buddy Tyler that I shot all those sniper competitions with, you can hand him a 243 hunting rifle and he will go mop the floor with 99.5% of the people that own guns. Yeah. So given the capabilities of guys like you and Tyler, what do you look for in a gun that you want to rapidly put rounds on targets between four and 800 yards with? So long-range ballistics come down to exit velocity and BC. That's it. So What's, what's the, BC? The BC is the ballistic coefficient of the bullet, basically how well it travels through the air. So, you know, are you throwing a football shaped bullet through the air that's you know got some weight to it and it's you know trying to push through the air or you throw in a wiffle ball through the air you know they decelerate at different rates so if you have a good high bc bullet that means it cuts through the air very well Uh, it's not as affected by wind it covers distance further therefore there's not as much time for the gravity to affect it as there is a a bad bullet um and then velocity is how fast it's actually covering that ground right so if i've got a slow bullet it's exposed to the environment longer before it actually gets to target whereas if i've got a fast bullet it covers that ground quickly and there's less time for wind and drop and everything to affect it so um basically to me it comes down to how hard do i want to hit that thing if i just want to hit it a little six millimeters all i need right so if they make a ton of great bullets in six millimeter you can make them go from 2,500 feet a second up to 3,500 feet a second. You just pick what case you want, how much power you want, how fast you want to go, and you send it out there. Um, as far as a 
all around do everything caliber, it's really tough to beat the old 300 Win Mag. I can go from a lightweight bullet to a 230 grain bullet and do a ton, a ton of cool stuff with middle of the road recoil. You know, you can shoot them as long as you get a suppressor or a compensator, you can shoot a fairly light rifle very accurately. But when you start talking about a true sniper role, there's other things that come into considerations for those guns. So I would say uh, one of the major things is that top rail for enablers. So your thermals or your night vision, because you spend 99% of the, the time the sniper's role is not shooting, it's observing and reporting. So um, you have all those enablers. Obviously, you can still shoot through them, but that's what they get used for most of the time. I want to turn the volume up on that little tidbit in case people missed it. 99% of the time as a sniper, you are looking at stuff. Yeah. Telling telling guys like you what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sir. <laughs> this isn't that sexy. Like, you are in an uncomfortable position in any kind of a weather, and you're just watching. Yeah. And, and I never got to do a ton of that. I got to spend a lot more time working on the, the shooting aspect, which is what everybody enjoys. And it's the most fun to practice. <laughs> it's not as much fun to practice laying on a mountainside, being cold, wet, and hungry. And, Oh, yeah. we're supposed to be there for three days. And it's, you know, four, five, six days after that third day. And, you know, we're still here. Yeah. That's like we were, we did a podcast earlier and, um, I've done all my experience, like mostly in all this, like long movement stuff outdoors was in the army. So you put on your clothes and you put on your ruck and you walked from wherever you were to wherever you were going as fast as you possibly could. <laughs> and you got there and then you did whatever you're supposed to do there. It wasn't like, Oh, you know what? We're going to go up to the top of this hill and then we're going to change layers on our clothing. And you know, it turned this whole thing into something that was very enjoyable. <laughs> like it, was, it was great. Like, yeah, it was raining, but you know what? I had the right gear and I actually had my wet weather gear on instead of in the bag. I never really understood why we just carried the wet weather gear around. But Oh, you don't actually wear it. No, you don't wear it. No. I don't know why you would. No. It doesn't it's, make any sense to wear it. Yeah. But it better be, it better be there. inside your yeah. bag. <laughs> yeah. No. Taking it for a walk, man. There's so much craziness that happens in the military. And, you know, I done a lot of the backcountry you know some of some of the tougher hunts beforehand and then you know we started doing these these long humps and stuff i was like there's a better way there's a substantially better yes. way than this way <laughs> yeah. and you just have to remind you yourself yeah. like, you're saying you did all the hunts before you went to the military yeah, yeah, oh yeah. yeah i'm so glad that i didn't have that experience <laughs> yeah i would have been just a little ball of hate walking around even worse than i was this is and i'm i'm five eight tyler's six one or so so that's not fun dude we and he goes 15 (laughs) minute miles whether you've got freaking 30 pounds on him or you got 80 pounds on him and so for me to go 15 minute mile i mean and we're talking obviously like flat we're not talking alaska kodiak mountains we're talking like go on the road and freaking burn it down so for me to do that it's literally Walkie, 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 runny, runny, runny. Walkie, 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 <laughs> runny, runny, runny. For hours. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks so bad. Dude, the the slinky effect. Oh, it's the worst. When you have a company or a battalion of dudes on a march is so brutal. So what happens for those who are uninitiated, the dude in the front <laughs> is walking at a pretty good clip. And then, then chaos ensues. And yes. eventually... 
the gap that is supposed to be one arm's reach to the dude in front of you turns into one arm plus four inches. And that happens over the course of a thousand guys. And then the guy... Somebody f- starts yelling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Touching guy in front of you. <laughs> and you realize that you can't. And then everybody has to sprint. And the poor dude in the very back <laughs> yeah. ends up having to sprint as fast as he can for a quarter mile to catch up. And then the slinky collapses and then she starts growing. <laughs> if you ever want to understand this, Google how traffic slowdowns happen. Because it's exactly the same way. The same reason you go down the highway and all of a sudden you're like, why were we stopped? There was nothing here. That's exactly what we're dealing yes. with. Yes. Go it, from 80 miles an hour to stopped. It is so painful. And the other really unfair thing that occurs, and at least this is the way the Marine Corps does it, when you fill out who stands where when you're oh, marching, they put the tall dudes in the front. Yeah. Right? So the little guys with little tiny steps, they've got to be in the back where the most running occurs. <laughs> they're just sprinting <laughs> everywhere they go. It's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah. The good thing is you're using top top of the line equipment. So oh, yeah. good boots and all. Nothing but the best. Yeah. That is a wild misnomer about <laughs> military gear. And then we we get in uh like for what me and Tyler were doing, it was all comp you know, the the sniper competitions, it was like you're competing against the best dudes in the world. So it's like, you know, here you are here and you are going here. Do you understand? Yes. Move out. Yeah. And right. so it's freaking you grab you and everything and you go a hundred and ten percent as hard as you can the whole time. So there's no like enjoyment. Like we went on this, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, look at the beautiful view. You're like, you know how many beautiful views I I can't even tell you how many there were because I never saw one. Yeah. You just burn it down as hard as you can. So you hoof it all the way out there to point B, mm-hmm. and you get there. Is there an RO standing there? Sometimes. It, like uh, one of the best competitions, definitely not the best, but one of the best was uh, that USASOC competition. And so you would get like What's, what's USASOC? Uh, United States Special Operations Command. Okay. So it's all... Uh, your Rangers, Green Berets, uh, SEALs, all those guys, and then guys from all around the world that are their counterparts. They don't invite the Marine Corps because they want everybody else to have a chance? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Gotcha. I think they're invited. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> might have used big words on the invitation and we got confused <laughs> or something. So uh, that was actually a really cool competition because they, at the very beginning, they gave you a brief. It was like, uh, bring, and this was this was the brief. Everybody was in there. This was your, your course. So you'd have a time, it was like your bus would leave or your, your van would leave at nine seventeen in the morning. And so you would, and the, the directions were super clear. Take all equipment you deem necessary to conduct sniper operations. Great. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you got on there and you, you know, we had, uh, but you could leave anything on the bus that, or on the van that you wanted to. Mm. So you're in a big 15 pack. So you've van. been picked up by the van before. This isn't. I wasn't way off when I started. No, no, no. This was just Tuesday. This is <laughs> the way it works. So, uh, so we had like a big team bag in the middle of the van that had everything. So we had all of our night vision, all of our thermals, all of our nods. You know, every everything you could possibly think you would want, and everything that we needed, we had two of. Yeah. And everything was in the in there, and uh, so you'd get on that van, and they would drive as fast as they could and they'd hand you a book and they said all right you know you have until the van stops to make a plan it would be like hey and they give you a scenario you're in an observation position and this is what's going on in front of you 
these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, and then the thing would slam to a stop. It literally like slide to a stop. They'd throw open the doors and say your time begins now, and you would run out of the van and figure it out. Or they'd say same thing like you are you are here and you're going here. You'll receive further instructions, and so you would get out of there. And along the way, if you saw anything that was good or bad, you'd try to remember it, and you'd either report it or you would shoot it or you would you know interact with it. And then you'd get to the second place and you get your next set of instructions, and it was just back to back to back. And the worst part was. They never gave you a score. Hmm. So you were completely blind the whole time. You had no idea if you were doing well or doing poorly. Um, we went in to do the stalk, and you had to be within 200 meters for the stalk, which is normal. But when you stalk in, like, sniper school or even the special forces sniper school, usually it's one, one to three observers. Well, they had seven observers. So you're trying to avoid detection by seven observers. So you had to get in there and then find your guy while under observation. And so, and they set it up because they've got good dudes coming after them. They put it to their advantage. So they were down in a bowl, and we had to come over the top of that ridge somewhere just to get down there to see them. So we got, me and Tyler got in there, and we popped into position. Or we popped over the ridge, and we were able to, to sneak down in and start you know trying to find our guy and we found perfect spots for every dude except our guy and finally we we got the guy that we were looking for and we got all set up and like i said we've won we'd won the international sniper comp twice we'd won mammoth sniper comp three or four times whatever it was we we were crushing it every single time we took a stalk shot tyler took the shot so uh i found the loophole and the way you do it for the people that haven't ever done this is you're you're in position in the or you're not in position but you're you're in there trying to find a shooting spot so you've got your binos out you're moving super slow you're just moving around you can see the guy but you can't see if it's really him because you're looking through three or four layers of vegetation and the guy is this like a cardboard thing with a picture on it no it's a real real world dude like real life guy behind binos gotcha and um so we're looking around and you know how i mean it's with binos through veg, it's really hard to see facial features. And, like, we don't know these people. So mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, I know. Oh, it's James, obviously. Right. So we we had to actually positively ID the people. So we had to be really – and if you shot the wrong guy, it was, you know, negative 1,000 points and 40 lashes or whatever. Like, I don't know. It was really bad. You had to make sure you got on the right guy. So I finally found a hole – it was perfect and then once the guy whether it's the shooter or the spotter um finds that loophole he does not move so i i found it and i locked on i'm like right here i got him tyler so tyler builds the position for me so i don't move he puts the tripod together he puts the gun together he camos up the gun he camos up me and then he rotates the gun up underneath me and pushes my binos out of the way so the gun is exactly where my binos were because in those situations if you move even an inch or two one way or the other it goes from a good clear shot to you can't even see the guy Mm -hmm. so he does that we get in position i'm sitting there on a knee like perfect shot 200 yards and uh we have blanks in there obviously so we don't actually have real live ammo um and i'm like man we have been so successful and tyler's taking the shot every single time so I was in position. I'm like, hey, dude. I was like, I think you should take the shot. 
He's like, why? I'm like, it's just, I've never had a superstitious thing ever in competition for any reason, except in that one moment. And I'm like, dude, get up here. And so I swapped out and then I went through and I recamoed everything, made sure he was perfect. And he, uh, he breaks a shot and they, once you break the shot, they, uh, send a walker out to you within, and he gets within 10 feet and, uh, they get, you know, three to five minutes to see if they can find you with knowing that that walker is within 10 feet of you. Mm -hmm. Then if they don't find you, they put a letter on top of the binos and then you have to ID the letter. So it came up, Tyler ID the letter and they're like, all right, send the second round. So now you're under observation, the walkers within 10 feet and you've got all these dudes. Actually, I tell you back, I don't think all of them could look at you. I think only the, the guy you were shooting at could look. Um, and then you have to shoot another shot. So you've got a blank coming out of that gun. So if you kick up any, they call it uh, toss salad or any type of vegetation disturbance, they'll, they'll key in on that and you're busted. And uh, he took his second shot, got 100% clean. Everything was good to go. Uh, so then once we did that, we had to get out of the position. So we broke it all down and headed out. Then you had to actually take that shot live from the exact same position. So they took pictures of you and then, uh, you shot at a 10 inch plate. Well, they didn't let me go because I wasn't in a position to observe the shot. And I'm sure they said it, but we just didn't hear it. So I had to watch Tyler freaking walk out of that room with his rifle and go to the range and make this shot for, you know, if you don't make that shot, you're out of the competition. Basically, there's no way you can win. And that was probably the longest 30 minutes of my life waiting for him to come back. And of course he nailed it, but yeah, pretty crazy. So let's, let's talk about what that takes to stock in on, on people who have optics who are looking for you and know where to look. Cause it, it's tough to sneak in on a critter. But if the animal that you're hunting is not is not alarmed, mm-hmm. right? They're just going about their day. So their level of awareness is is standard for whatever their life is like. And some animals are more keyed up than others. Mm-hmm. But I think it's fair to say that most animals are not looking for you as hard as people who are actively looking for you with equipment to do so. Well, and they can't because you couldn't live on that level no. of, you know, constantly freaking out. You'd die. Right. You know, and the same thing with people. You you put people in that situation you let them sit there for three months. There's no way they're going to be as alert as they are as like, okay, the sniper stock starts now and it ends in three hours. Yeah. No, that, that level of fatigue when you're, when you're in that situation is devastating to, oh, yeah. to your psyche, to, to your physical ability, your mental ability, everything. So how do you do that, um, you know, without giving away any, any OPSEC stuff? Like, how do you camouflage yourself up? How are you actually making that approach? So it's really funny. Like, when I went to sniper school, we had we started with, like, 63 dudes, and we graduated 17. And from day one, the dudes that grew up in the country had an advantage because they just were used to working. They, they were used to that kind of game of of – extremely high level like hide and seek basically Mm -hmm. and they they understood like hey if he can't see me and i can't see him i can move freely whereas a lot of guys 
you know, didn't have that experience. And, uh, you know, sound gives away presence. Movement gives away position. So in the hunting world, as long as you don't make noise or get busted by scent, they really don't know you're there, right? Like the odds, they, they have to just happen to look by when you're moving to actually give away presence and position at the same time. And, and it's just hard for them to, to cover that much ground with their eyes all the time. Um, but when you're stalking on that target that they, they know you're coming and they know that the other thing is they know the direction you're coming and odds are they've been through that area, you know, for months. So they know, and they're snipers. So they know your most likely avenue of approach. Exactly. So it's not like, you know, there's this 45 degree swath that they have to observe. They're like, well, from coming from where they're coming from, there's like three drainage ditches and a couple of big trees. So there's really like five avenues of approach that, or else you're going to get busted. So when you're coming into that, you, the, the biggest thing is you've got to find the target first, which sounds obvious, but it's the most difficult thing to do. And it always goes like this. You're sneaking through the woods, being super careful. You've got a, a grid. They give you a grid coordinate for the truck. So you'll put that on the map and then you'll, you'll put where you start on the map and then you'll kind of try to use some, a, to, a topo map to, to find an avenue of approach. And then, um, one thing that helped me out was I would set a compass on where that truck was supposed to be, but you'd be sneaking through there every single time, man. And all of a sudden you'd look up and there's the whole truck. It's not like you saw like, or like there's the whole group of dudes with their binos. It's not like you saw like, Oh, there's an edge or a wheel and I'm going to stay sneaky. No, you're like just standing out there in front of God and everybody. And you're staring right at the truck and you freaking drop, flatten yourself out and you crawl back behind a tree and you're like, Oh, thank God they didn't see. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Tyler, Tyler had a guy, we were at the international sniper competition and we were maybe 180 meters from the truck because this stuff was so thick and, uh, we lost the bearing of the truck. So once we find the truck, you set a compass to that bearing. So you can always, even though you can't see the truck, you, you can set your compass and you know where the truck is through Mm -hmm. all the vegetation. And, uh, we just, we we're in a bad position and it was because of that they knew they forced us all in that bad position there's nowhere else to go um and one of the walkers saw movement and what they do is they'll call freeze and no one can move and then the walker will go out with a big orange stick and that's your that's the observer's quote-unquote bullet so the the observer will say you know four steps left ten steps to the rear okay sniper at your feet and he literally walked and brushed Tyler's arm as he walked past him. So that observer saw him. He just was, Tyler had a good enough ghillie suit and good enough uh, breakup of his outline that the guy couldn't figure out exactly where he was at. And uh, both of us were sitting there staring at each other about to have a heart attack. (laughs) It was really bad. (laughs) That was a crazy one too because once we got through all that, not to make this long story longer, but we actually took our shot from 72 yards. We could hear them talking in the truck. There was nowhere else we could find a loophole. Mm. So it's pretty amazing. So your ghillie suit, is that something that you would ever use in a hunting situation? Uh, I have just to see if it's practical and I didn't actually answer your question earlier. So I apologize, but for all the ghillie suit does is break up outline, right? So mm-hmm. like it's, and it gives me something to tie natural veg to. And if, if people 
look out there. This is how you think of camouflage. If you like define invisibility, right? You look through something and see whatever's behind it. That is invisible. If 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 you can't, if there's nothing obstructing your view, then you are technically invisible. So, I don't want to look like a tree or a bush or anything. I want to look like whatever is directly behind me relative to the observer. If I do that, then I'm invisible and he can't find me. So that changes usually at about 12 to 14 inches because that's usually the tops of grass. And then it changes again at about three to four feet because that's usually the tops of small bushes. And that's just kind of generally how it goes. So if you're out there and you're hunting something, look at the most likely avenue of approach of the animal and then turn around and look directly through where you would be and you want to look like whatever that is. So camo patterns are great, but all they do is break up outline. So they have neutral colors that generally break up the outline and some of them match the environment better than others, but nothing's ever going to do what, you know, four rubber bands and some natural veg will do because then you actually look like the environment you're trying to blend into. Are you bringing little pruners out there with you to cut stuff? Yeah, so I take uh, pruners and those rubber bands, like I said. I'll just take regular old rubber bands. I'll wrap them around a tripod, wrap them around my forearms, wrap them around the gun. And then when you get in there, you once you get to an area, you'll find the truck. You'll find where you think you're going to take a shot from. And then you just start putting that veg in your equipment. And then you look like what's behind you, and then they can't see you. And then the other thing is you use a screen. So a screen's like basically something between you and what you're trying to avoid and it can be anything it can be a tree it can be a bush it can be you know literally a sheet now i've used some ghillie suits i've never actually done like the attached vegetation to it but i've used you know big poofy ghillie suits before mm-hmm. and i've found that with archery it's really difficult to make one that doesn't interfere with your string yeah um, so there's some practicality with it, maybe with a rifle shooting from the prone, but with archery, you have to be really careful that the inside of your arm, the inside of your chest doesn't have extra stuff sticking out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it costs me some shots. And really, all, like I said, all a ghillie suit does is break up the outline. It doesn't, it's not a camouf- it's not a camouflage in the way that some people think of. So people think you put a ghillie suit on, you're invisible. Mm-hmm. No, you look like a dude in a ghillie suit. You look like a Wookiee running around the woods. Like, that's not <laughs> natural anywhere, no matter how what uh, the Wookiee hunters have to say. Um, so what gives the ghillie suit the advantage is when you attach that natural veg, you've got so much other stuff breaking up that outline, you don't look like a human. You don't look like anything, really. You look like just a collection of dark and light spots and that's another thing i carried all of the time i carried all i carried spray paint all the krylons camo colors Mm -hmm. um and before i talk about that though the they call them viper hoods like if you google a viper hood it's just a ghillie suit that goes from the brakes of the shoulders to the top of the head basically and that's a really good that's a practical thing to use like a ghillie suit's not practical no one's gonna you're not gonna go out in there with a 20 pound burlap bag around you you'd heat stroke and die so um but the little viper hoods are really good if you're listening that i think would be well worth your time of looking into but the the spray paint is huge because you can get there and you my personal opinion is i always want to be lighter because i can all i can easily darken up it's really tough to lighten up and you don't want to be that one black spot in the woods right that one dark hole jordan what does camouflage mean to you 
Uh, just breaking up an outline. Yeah. Yeah. Are they all are all yeah. camouflage patterns created equally? Um, no. Ob- I mean, to the human eye. Ob- objectively, kind of, what are you looking for in the actual colors and design of camo? Um, that's a good question. I've never gotten asked before, James. Rut row. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think you definitely don't want to be too dark. It, it's, it's interesting. I was wearing the, the first Sitka pattern that came out. Whichever, like the light, the open country, whatever. The concrete stuff? Yes. And where I was at, uh, in Nebraska, it's more of like a a golden brown grass. Like pretty light. So I was wearing that stuff. And my dad came over the hill driving down the road. And I was walking alongside a hill a mile and a half away. And he said it looked black. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Camouflage is something I think about a lot. I love it. I love camouflage. Get real geeky about it. (laughs) Um, I like negative space camouflage. So I consider positive space camouflage stuff that is like an item, like a picture of a limb or a leaf or something like that. I consider that positive space. I consider negative space everything that is behind that thing that you can identify. Um, So one of the first like real negative space camos that I ever came across was ASAT. It's like, wow, this isn't a picture of sticks and twigs. This is the stuff between spaces. Like, I like that. Now I'm, now I'm in the background. That stuff had so much black in it. It really didn't click for me, but it was interesting. You know, it was a step in the right direction. I think the first digital camouflage pattern was flannel. And if you think about what, what plaid flannel, was was big digital blocks and then it faded out into smaller dots around the blocks and it was red and black red being a a color that's not part of the light spectrum that you know deer and elk can observe and i hear old timers be like oh well we got it done and you know red plaid shirts like yeah you did that was the first digital camouflage pattern and you know digital came on strong with the military later on with some of the contracts, you know, that the Army and the Marine Corps bid on. And that was all fine and dandy. And we've started to move away from that a little bit and gotten away from the fractiles and pixels a little bit more. And there's there's more of a blend of colors where you start to see a spectrum, like a wash, a, a fade of one color from, from tan to brown. Mm-hmm. I love stuff like that. What I think really clicks for animals is that they have so many colors on them. And a deer, if you look at it from 100 yards away, you can be like, oh, that deer's gray or that deer's brown. But a lot of times a deer can just vanish right in front of you. And if you pull out one hair of a deer, it has nine colors on that single hair. If you pull out one feather of a hen mallard, it's got 57 different colors of tans and browns on it. And... I think that that is what really makes camouflage function in the real world is lots of little tiny colors and at distance it can seem like one color but the reality of it is that light is hitting that in so many different ways that they can really blend in Hmm. and a hen mallard or hen pheasant or a rough grouse man they can just vanish if they sit still and and they're in the right type of cover another thing that 
um, kind of drives me crazy is a lot of camouflage is green. You know, we were stuck on green for a long time. There's some green that works. There's some green that I like to look at, but there are no green mammals. And I think that there's a reason why there are no green mammals. I think that if it was an effective color for camouflage, that some mammals would have evolved to have that. And before anybody gets mad at me, sloths move slow enough that <laughs> vegetation can grow on them mm-hmm. and they can become green in appearance. <laughs> and that's important because they do move so slow, they're very vulnerable to predation. <laughs> but that is the exception. But nothing grows a green hair. Mm. So I'm not wild about green camo. If you uh, if you want to test your camo, go out there and put it out there at the elevation that you are going to be when you're hunting and look at it. And then go out there. This is something I would I do all the time is I just take a bungee cord, like a green or a brown or a black bungee cord, whatever, it doesn't matter, just a bungee cord, and just wrap it around your chest and then just stick like two pieces of veg from the, the altitude that you're at in that and watch how much more effective that camo pattern becomes. Yeah. It's It's not twice as good. It's like 40 times as good. Interesting. Yeah. Because like you said, it's it's that, it's, it doesn't, the camos now don't look like a tree. They don't look like, they look like the stuff behind the tree, like you're saying. So if you put something that is supposed to be between you and the animal, in between you and the animal, it makes that camo be able to do what it was designed to do. I love that. I'm going to go try some stuff when I get home. Super good. <laughs> I, I That's why, like, you know, those rattle cams of Krylon, I'll, paint you up a tripod that you can put out there and you will never ever ever see it i better not do that because i am a lever behind me too of things <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right cool there's there's two things that i really want to get into here okay the first thing is practice and the second thing is execution okay oh that's a short to- couple of short topics <laughs> <laughs> And we don't obviously have the time to go into these with the depth that we could. And we're going to do more of this later, folks. We're going to do more of this later. We're, we're going to call this 101 or maybe like remedial, if yeah. you will. Familiarization. So this is a class you've got to take to get into the class. But how many rounds would you say you've, you've fired if you had to take a stab at it? Oh. I've got one pistol that's got 540,000 rounds on it. So I've got well... I would say at least a million, maybe close to a million and a half bullets. Okay. Somewhere in there. So I'm, I'm just trying to help people understand the, the amount of experience that you have and the focus that you've given towards constant improvement and the way that focus and that experience has, has become turning you into what you are, which is the best shooter in the world on the face of the planet you are the best at firing guns of of all the people and i love that and i love that i get to have you as a friend and as a resource and i love that you're a resource for other people and i want folks to realize what a tremendous resource you are like they can talk to the person who's the best at doing this thing and and ask questions and get answers and that's kind of what I want to get into here so you know you've taken this broad world of shooting everything from from tactical handguns to shotguns to 
freaking sniper rifles and, and everything in between. And you hunt on your own time. You go on these really difficult hunts like what we're doing. And, and you're making it all happen. So with that said, what are some, some actual real-world practicing things that people can do? Practicing is expensive. It's very yeah. expensive to yeah. shoot a lot of bullets. Um, so that can be a limiting factor, but it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. So the the number one thing, and um, let's isolate it to rifle hunting yeah. for now. All right? Sure. So the number one thing, you must, above all other things, make sure your gun is zeroed. That is the number one thing I see guys failing on. So I can have a, you know, $10,000 rifle with a $5,000 scope shooting $4 shot ammo with a, you know, I had a $10,000 rangefinder at one time. Like, I can have all of the best equipment with a $40,000 thermal in the front. If that gun's not zeroed, all of it is worthless. And there's nothing I can do about it because I'm not even going to know where that first bullet goes until I pull the trigger. Right. So, the like, I cannot stress to you how concerned I am with a rifle zero. I will zero... I zeroed these guns that we brought here no less than three times because again, like a, I was bringing guns for other people, which they have to be perfect. I I want my stuff perfect, but if it's somebody else's stuff, I'm going to go through it every single nut and bolt and make sure it's exactly right. But the zero has to be good because you cannot be in that moment when you're being tested and have the doubt of, is this bullet going to go where I think it is or not? And, and I see guys all the time like, oh, it's good enough, or oh, I zeroed it last year. Oh, I, I'm shooting three different types of ammunition, you know? Like, it's it's stuff that, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of the expense and the cost, whether it's monetary or time, you know, all of that stuff could be totally for nothing if you don't have a gun that's zeroed. And I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen guys go in the woods with unzeroed guns. So tell me if I'm correct in, in my process. So what, what I'm going to do, let's say I pull, pull a rifle out of my safe. Mm-hmm. Probably doesn't have a scope on it because I have too many freaking guns right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I grab a scope, I put it on the gun, yep. I grab some ammo, I go out, I, you know, I, I put up a target at 100 yards, I lay down, I go bang, and it hits three inches to the right. And I you know, mill it out on my scope. It's like, okay, I need to move it over mill and a half, move it over, bang, hit center, reload, bang, hit center. Like I'm good to go. And now I'm going to shoot a target at 300 yards. I'm going to shoot a target at 500 yards, like make sure that, you know, what I think my, my muzzle velocity and my ballistic coefficient is clicking. If, if I get, you know, decent impacts within three or four inches at those ranges, I'm probably just going to go hunt with the damn thing. Yeah. I wouldn't say anything wrong with that. Is that, is that good yeah, enough? That's good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, at the same time, like I take it and it's all relative to how much time you have, but like on something like this, I zero those guns in three completely different environments as far as lighting conditions and all that, because I, I wanted to make sure that zeroed that day was zeroed every day. And, um, sometimes you'll see like you come out there and you're half inch left half inch right or whatever um but no expense is spared no fail on zero in the rifle that gun will be zeroed before i go somewhere gotta do it 
Yeah. Un, uh, no, I will not go in the woods with an unzeroed rifle. Well, how how good is good enough? I mean, to me, it's perfect. It's got to be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no good enough. <laughs> it's either it's binary, one or a zero. It's one zeroed or, a zero. or it's not zeroed. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, after you've got that down, um, you know, and, and that's something that intimidates a lot of people. And one thing I'd like to tell everybody, the way to make it easier on yourself is tr- is it, when you're looking at your turrets. And I, I mean, for years, I would turn turrets the wrong way. You know, I won a lot of competitions, and I would still turn the turrets the, the wrong way. The whole sentence is, I'm going to move the bullet to the right three inches. Mm-hmm. So if you if your bullet hits left three inches, I'm going to say, I'm going to move the bullet to the right three inches, and then I go to the scope, and I turn it that many clicks to, to the right because you're moving the bullet. You're not moving the crosshairs. So you're moving the bullet, whatever it says the increment is on that scope. And uh, if you can just remember that, that I'm the whole sentence is not, you know, right three inches. It's, I'm moving the bullet right three inches. Boom. I make the adjustment. That will keep you from getting lost left and right. The other thing is start close. You know, start at 25 yards mm. where you're going to be successful. Point in the middle, shoot a shot. You want that bullet to be about an inch, inch and a half low. Uh, once you've made that adjustment, you go out to the 100 yard and then you zero. And That'll and probably that save make, you some ammo. It'll save you a ton of ammo. And there's a, I actually got a target that I made four guys in that that makes it super easy that I'm hoping that we'll be able to get out next year cool yeah it does all the it does everything for you 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 say you have this type of scope you hit here it does all it tells you exactly how many clicks to move it that's nice yeah it's really nice if uh if you're shooting and this is something that you know it's happened to me and i've seen happen to a lot of people they have a hard time zeroing and they end up chasing the bullet all over the map yeah and they start doubting their equipment so first of all you got to define success and for me, with the type of guns and the type of ammo and the type of optics that I'm using, like, it's got to be under an inch. There is a pile of ammo out there. I'm talking the vast majority of the ammo won't shoot under an inch. Right. Now, it'll shoot three bullets that group under an inch because the bullet's got to land somewhere. Mm-hmm. But if you did a 20-shot group on that stuff with the best rifle in the world, that group would be two and a half inches right. because that's what the ammo is truly capable of. So to me, I don't, especially with hunting, unless you know your equipment, you know your bullets, um, if you're shooting anything that's not a match level ammunition, do not adjust a scope with less than three bullets on target. Do, okay. do not shoot one and then shoot another. Do not shoot one, make an adjustment, then shoot another one. Because you could easily be on the bottom side of the group on one shot, make the adjustment, and then you're on the right side of the group and you're like, oh, my scope's not moving the right way. Well, you're shooting a circular group that's two and a half inches. So if you're, you just imagine around that bullet, you know, that radius, then that's, imagine that size of a bullet impact on your target and what you would need to move. Yeah. I've seen guys shoot $200 worth of ammunition. Oh yeah. Because they were trying to save money. So they're adjusting on every impact. Every impact. Yeah. And there's like, I've got maybe two rifles that I would say are good enough that you could do that and be completely confident. But it's so much faster to shoot three bullets, minimum of three bullets. So I shoot three bullets, make the adjustment, shoot three bullets, make the adjustment, then I'm generally in the middle. Then I'm going to shoot five bullets in the middle there. And that's all I'm going to do. I can zero a gun in 10 minutes if I do that. I shoot at 25, I get it 
about an inch low. I go to 100. I shoot a three-round group. I make the adjustment, and generally the next group is in the middle. And there's no way it will take me more than 10 bullets to do that. But if you go out there and you start at 100 and you shoot one shot and you try to make an adjustment, you can be there for boxes and boxes of ammo. Yeah. I've seen me do it. I've seen me do it, too. It's frustrating. <laughs> that, that is the voice of experience telling y'all. <laughs> I've done it. Yeah. Not fun. Mm-mm. Um, what's your process, Jordan? Uh, just reciting in. Yeah. It's dang near the same of what you guys just said. Yeah. Really shoot it in at a hundred and then always try to get the groups. We did a little scope switch ruskies right at the beginning of this hunt. And I ended up, you know, throwing on a scope that I'd brought from home. that was a different, on a different gun, whatever. And, you know, swung the stock out of the way and bore sighted it on the corner of a target at 100 yards and the first shot was on paper and daniel was spotting for me and i saw the bullet impact knew where it was milled it out and was totally expecting you to say you know come left two mils and dan goes give me another bang hit about the same spot and I was like, all right, surely it's adjustment time. Give me another. Give me another. Bang. <laughs> I was like, does this guy think that I don't know how a gun works? <laughs> Give me another. Bang. I, was, I turn around and he goes, we got lots of bullets. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes, we do. And, uh, you know, that was a much better zero. It was a much better zero than I would have come away from that with. And my level of confidence and hoofing it up the mountain and, you know, all the things. Oh, yeah you know, lay down and it's, it's, it's ice time. Like yeah. I, I know that this gun's right, you know, and me being able to get myself right, get my mind right for actual shot execution was so much easier when there wasn't any doubt in the gun. Yeah. And my confidence was higher because I'd fired more shots during the zeroing process. So that was a big lesson learned for me. Good. I think you should touch on bore sighting real quick. Bore sighting. I think that would help a lot of people that, pull a scope out of a box and shoot, shoot it at the target once and don't hit anything. Well, let me tell you how you bore sight a tank. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of fun. Yeah. So the, the tank barrel is a 120 millimeter smooth bore cannon that's 17 feet 7 inches long. It is a big old gun. And on the very front of it, if you ever have the exquisite pleasure of looking down the barrel of a tank, you'll see that there are little dimples at the 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock position. And what we do is we take dental floss and we tape it from 12 to 6, from 3 to 9, and you made yourself a crosshair. And then you crawl back into the belly of the beast and you go and point the barrel at the target and you look down that barrel with a pair of binoculars and make sure that you are centered up in it so that it has the same amount of barrel on all sides and you've got a good sight picture and you put the crosshairs on the target and then you adjust the sights so that everything's looking at the same stuff and you're zeroed. And I've tried that. <laughs> it's really cool. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like the most punk rock bore sighting I've ever done. <laughs> and I've tried it on like my 50 cal <laughs> and uh, dental floss is too big. Like Doesn't I, work. I need something else. It's not, I haven't figured it out on a rifle, but <laughs> it's, that's it's pretty fun. Cool. Yeah. It's pretty fun. So how do you bore sight? So, I, well, I bore sight, take the bolt out, you know, obviously, uh, set the gun up and make sure the gun is not moving. 
and then I find some small object. I look through there, try to get the concentric circles, and then I adjust the reticle to where it seems to be pointing where the bore is pointing. How far away are you looking? I want to try object? to get out at 200 yards, somewhere okay. in there. Okay. That, that's the best. And and at the AMU, we had a guy, and he uh, was our test guy, and he tested all the service rifle guns, and they tested them at 600 and 1,000 yards. And this cat could bore sight you on a six foot by six foot target board at a thousand yards with no sights on the gun every single time. Hmm. I have done it bore sighted and been within an inch and I've bore sighted and not been on paper. Yeah. So, you know, I still, even though I bore sight, I still use the same deal. I start at 25 yards. It just saves bullets and frustration. I, I really like to use the corner of something. Yeah. Like if I can find a 90 degree corner on, on a target, like I've got a, a and Again, my steel target's at 500 yards, and that's what I've been using. But I can find that white corner and put that in the middle of my bore and look through it. And I'll sandbag in my gun, and I'll, you know, move my head up and down and make sure that everything's looking right and, you know, make the adjustments. The adjustments will firk with you. Um, so if you can, if you can get your gun steady enough, what I like to do is put the target in the center of my bore, and then I'll look up. And I won't even think about whether I'm moving up or down. Just crank on it. And I'll just move it until the crosshairs are on the target. Yep. And I've probably moved the gun during that. So then I'll come back and, you know, realign the bore with the target, look back up. Okay, now we're good. I'm ready to... Send one out there. Yeah, try some paper. See what happens. (laughs) So why 200 yards? Uh, Just greater than 200. Greater than 200. doesn't matter. I mean, I've done it on... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Try to... Yeah. I personally don't put a lot of stock in it i've seen it work really well and i've seen it work really badly but if i can get it to where at least hits paper at 25 that's the the fastest way to get a zero just get it on paper at 25 make the adjustment and get out at 100 and that you know i've seen guys try to save money by saving ammo doing doing it bore sighting it trying to put it out at 100 man it's it never works out yeah it might work out once it won't work out over a hundred zeros yeah i've seen some some wild stuff in yeah. sighting. i've seen dudes try and do it offhand oh yeah that's um, my favorite it's like <laughs> that's that's some that's some freaking punk rock stuff you want to talk about if you can boresight a gun offhand you are another level yes you are a bronze <laughs> statue yes um but i do think that uh knowing knowing what there's a I don't want to say anything bad, but there's this completely false thought out there that there are all these half-minute and one-minute guns running around. Right. Like, most of the guns with most of the ammo are going to be about two minutes. If you shoot, if you lay down with a great shooter and you shot a 20-round string, a 20-round group, you're going to be close to a minute and a half, two minutes. Yep. And that's just the reality. I had a guy tell me that his M4 shot a a half a minute of angle. So an M4 in the Army is able to be given to a soldier at three minutes. Right. The ammo is is able to be given to a soldier at three minutes. So that means you have a six-minute solution that is ready to go to war. Which means that at 100 yards, it can land within six inches of the target and be good to go. Yeah, a three-inch radius of the center. Yeah, so six inches diameter. And if you shoot enough three-shot groups, eventually three of those bullets will land side by side. Right. 
But if you go out there and you shoot a 30 or a 50 or a 100 round group like we used to do at the AMU, you'll see a pretty round four and a half inch group usually. And that's where I see a lot of guys, you know, kind of fall into, well, the bullet's going to go where the crosshairs were. And that's not always the case. If you're trying to really get a refined zero, that's why you got to shoot enough rounds that, that you can actually see. And that's with the shooter basically out of the loop. You know, that's in perfect situation off of a, a bench and all that type stuff. And, you know, if you, like, I know that I add about a tenth, or I add about in inches, I add about uh, two-tenths to a quarter of an inch to any system at 100 yards with me off bipod legs in a bag and having shot a million and a half rounds. Like, I add that to the system. Right. And most people don't have don't haven't shot that much right so like they're adding more than that so when you put the human factor in that group gets a lot bigger so uh and the other thing is most guys are zero in hunting rifles that have a real small barrel so you get three to five rounds into that thing the barrel heats up and the group gets big it's just the way it works so that's why you'll see a lot of companies advertise you know a, a three shot group size because if you go more than that the barrel heats up and it just won't shoot and it's not nothing against that company it's just the way metallurgy works and another thing that people need to realize is that what a lot of companies do is they will shoot five shots and they'll take the three of those the three that are the tightest and that's what they'll say is their group size and uh that's that's some fudgy science yeah that's that's how you end up with government numbers yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah when when people start talking about group sizes like me personally like when it comes to like work stuff or something that my competition like i don't even i don't even consider the measurement of a group size of anything less than 10 bullets yeah like it i really want like if you want to if you ask me like hey dan go test that gun tell me how big it shoots it's going to be a 20 shot group yeah and and you're going to count it every i'm counting every bullet and if I shoot a bad shot, I start over. Let the gun cool completely off. Start over at one. Yeah. Now, the longest range we shot for for rifle qualification in the Marine Corps is 500 yards on a silhouette target. And I think it was 18 by 20 inches. Does that sound right? Probably 20 by 40 type. But I don't know. Something like yeah. that. I don't know. It's like from, you know, yeah. from, from the waist up, shoulder yep. width, that kind of target. And, you know, I'm shooting a 14 and a half inch barrel with you know, a sloppy trigger mm-hmm. and a gun that rattles like a Macarena every time you move it. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, government class ammo. Yeah. It's like, you have to do everything right. Like you have to be holding so freaking right. And then just hope that the bullet is on your side. Yep. 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 And sometimes you can do everything right and it still slips off. Right. You know, and that's one thing, I mean, even me and my dad have had this conversation, like he was, he was like, man, this gun's not shooting good. And I went over there and, um, we were looking at, I'm like, dude, that ammo, that ammo doesn't shoot. He's got a beautiful custom 300 wind mag that shoots one hole, but you put the wrong ammo in it. It's like putting diesel fuel in a Ferrari. It just is not going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we got a gun zero Mm -hmm. and we don't want to break the bank, but we do want to practice. Yep. How do you go about it? So, obviously, the the easy answer is to say dry fire. But before I start any type of practice or training, I have to define success. Like, what what am I trying to get out of this, right? Like, if I'm going to dry fire for five minutes or I'm going to dry fire for 15 minutes, at the end of that five or 15 minutes, what, 
will I have accomplished? And so when I start talking about once a month, my gun zeroed, it's all up to me now, right? Like I just have to point in the right spot and break the trigger. So I need to, to train in an environment that's similar to where I'm going to be tested. So, you know, you can, you can dry fire a prone position off bipods, but if you don't think that that's where you're going to actually take your shot from, it's, it's training a useless skill, right? Cause it's never going to be tested. So think about what your most likely shot is and then practice that shot dry as far as building the position. And then the biggest thing to me to practice is the process of putting that bullet on target. Once you get to that position, what am I going to do and in what order? So I use, I, I say rep wind, R-E-P wind. So range, first thing, elevation. So if I have to dial or hold, I know exactly where I'm holding. Position, the position has to be good enough to allow me to hold the target that I'm trying to hit. And then wind, so direction and velocity. And then I apply that hold and I break the shot. So R-E-P wind, I do it the exact same way every single time. As soon as you say, James says, hey, shoot that deer right there. First thing I do, pull my laser rangefinder. Boom. Okay, he's 250 yards. As I'm moving into a position to, that I, is going to be stable enough for me to engage that deer, I'm thinking either thinking about my hold or I'm applying the come up to the scope. I get into position and make sure that my position will hold the center 60% of the available target area. So on a deer, you say... It's what ten inch circle or so in the lung sure. area. Yep. So if my hold my hold needs to be six inches or better. If I'm getting wobble outside of six inches, I need a better position. So once I build a position that allows me to hold the center sixty percent of the available target area, I look at the wind because I'm getting ready to fire the shot and I need to know the wind conditions right now. So I look at the wind most of the time, unless you're in Kodiak, Alaska, or somewhere in the Midwest, it's really not going to be too much of a factor. But if it is, you want to know wind direction and velocity and apply the correct hold, and then I'm going to break the shot. And I'm going to do that every single time. And from the time that I get off the plane or I get to the blind or whatever I'm doing, I'm envisioning being in that moment and doing those things perfectly every single time because that's what I see the most failure come from is guys get in that moment and they rush and they're like, oh, there he is. I got to break the shot. And they get that buck fever. They get the target panic, whatever you want to call it. They rush through that process and they wound an animal. They miss an animal. You know, it, it's it's crazy what happens. Well, that's very cool. As far as like the actual breaking of the shot, mm -hmm. talk me through it. So once I've established my position, I've established my wind hold, I'm actually in position looking at the animal, what I'm, what I'm doing the entire time I'm looking through the scope is I'm imagining that animal's vitals relative to its position. So I want an upper heart center of the lung shot is what I go for on right. pretty much everything. So I'm thinking about the orientation of the animal and exactly where I want that bullet to go. I've got my solution on the, uh, the gun, everything's dialed in, I've got a good position. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to press through the trigger, allow the gun to go off and watch the bullet impact the target. And if I do that, it'll make sure that I've got good follow through and I don't jerk the trigger. So that's another, you know, like the cross that we've been hunting with has a great trigger, two and a half pound trigger. It's two, two to two and a half pounds. It's a great hunting trigger. The lighter triggers like that are far easier to shoot. They lead to much more success. 
if you get up in that four and five pound range, I don't care how good of a shooter you are, it's really easy to disturb that gun and disturb that reticle and pull the uh, pull the crosshairs off target. So now the cross has a two stage trigger, which I love. Yeah, and there's some there's a lot of folks that aren't aren't used to that. Yeah. So what are the advantages of two stage? I personally am a huge two two stage fan because it allows you to it allows you to have an effectively light trigger without having a light trigger so that like the cross it's a two pound trigger well there's one pound on the first stage so you take the the slack up of one pound and you're left with one pound on the back end so you've got a very safe two pound or two and a half pound trigger but you've taken up a pound to a pound and a half of that trigger on the front end so i'm on target i've got pressure applied to the trigger so i and i know where it is so if your fingers are cold or you've got gloves on you can touch that trigger without it just going off take it up to the stop let the gun settle in let it settle right on target and then you're sitting on the wall of that trigger where it breaks and then you just press through it and let the gun go off and the bullet hits the target jordan single stage two stage what do you think i like two stage i haven't been around a lot of them um before the cross i've been around like the accu trigger Mm -hmm. that they have in rugers mostly um but uh yeah, other than that, I've just been around single stage. But I yeah. really like the two stage. So like the Accu trigger, you know, the Savage trigger stuff like that. That's more of a safety than uh, than an actual two stage, but it does function similarly, at mm-hmm. least psychologically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've used some Geisley triggers. You know, I really like Geisley triggers for some of the ARs that I've worked around with, and uh, I love the two stage. Yeah, love. I use Timney triggers, and they. They do great stuff too. I designed a trigger for them um, or with them for ARs and it's a light take up um, and it's a competition trigger. So yeah. it's, it's adjustable from like a pound to three pounds, but it's a light two stage. It feels just like a 1911 trigger, a little real light take up and then a super crisp clean break. So I'm able to run up my triggers like 14 ounces on my AR. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's too light. But I bet you if you pulled it 10 times, you'd be able to go out there and never have a problem feeling it. And you would never disturb the reticle and your hits would go through the roof. Man, I got to play with that trigger at the Timney booth at Hunt Expo. And I was like, oh, my God, this is nice. Oh, I will take a a great trigger and a good rifle way before I would take a great rifle with a good trigger. Because I can take a great trigger and I can shoot that rifle as well as it can be shot. Yeah. You can give me a great rifle with a crappy trigger and I can't consistently make that gun go off when it's on target. Yeah. No, I want to get one of those Timney triggers. Those things are freaking rad. Yeah, they're really good. Um, let's talk about harvesting some atmospheric data. Yeah. How you go about it? I use a Kestrel. What's so your Kestrel tell you? My it's Kestrel. A, it's a bird. Like Yeah. He flies around. He's pretty pretty cool he's real fast, fast. Too. super fast. fast bird yeah yeah i got that 212 wing upgrade yeah yeah mine will do about 214 on the downhills yeah. um now it's uh so it's a little weather meter and you can get them uh that that either have the ballistic calculations in them as far as they either have applied ballistics or hornady's ford off or whatever is your your flavor um but really what I'm using as far as the environmental side is uh, density altitude. And so when I went to sniper school in 2008, we still had these giant 
calculations where you took in humidity and temperature and altitude and all this stuff, barometric pressure, right? And in the end, it gave you this correcting number for your data. So like if you were, I mean, this was back when it was like, you didn't dial to three mils, you dialed to 500 plus one click or whatever. This is, you know, and, and dark ages. Yeah. They had, they had, they had it way worse before that, but it compared to what we have it now, it was pretty, pretty basic. Um, but we did all that computation to essentially come up with density altitude. Apparently the aviation world has known about density altitude about three minutes after the Wright brothers <laughs> and snipers just kind of were a little late to the game. So now we use density altitude, which is a deviation from a standard air pressure is all it is. So like when you go up in altitude and the air gets thinner and it gets hotter and the air gets thinner, the density altitude goes up. And when you go down and it gets cooler, the density altitude goes down. And all it does is it changes the, the amount of drag applied to that bullet as it goes through the air. Yeah. How many air molecules is it going to bang into exactly. between you and the target? Yep. And that's, it, it's, it sounds complicated, but it's really, really simple. It's, is it thick air or is it thin air? And thick air is going to slow the bullet down faster and it's going to equate to more drop at that range. Humidity. And it's calculated in the density altitude. Doesn't and really matter that doesn't much matter. though. No. That was the other thing. We went through all these staggon calculations, and <laughs> in the end, it's like, well, and like you can't add enough humidity for it to matter. Yeah. Basically, temperature matters a lot. Matters. Yeah. Elevation matters, matters a lot. A lot. Yeah. But realistically, if you go in with a, a middle of the road density altitude, which is about five thousand, out to six hundred, you're plenty good, man. Sure. Like it's good enough. Yeah. You know, and you can get in there, and you know argue that point but you know if you're shooting a common sense bullet with a common sense velocity you know at 5,000 feet density altitude out to 600 yards you're plenty good man so i've you know i've, I've had some angry thoughts a couple of times when people want to talk to me about the coriolis effect oh, yeah. because they watch shooter yeah when does the coriolis effect actually matter I am not good enough to calculate it. <laughs> I'm not good enough to need to calculate it. Gotcha. So, yeah, if you're at the Earth's equator, and again, man, like you're talking about stuff that is numbers on a computer. Yep. It's not bullets in flight, yep. right? Like if you're on the equator and you're shooting perfectly east and west and your target is greater than 1,000 yards, then mathematically you could potentially see a difference. That being said, I know guys who have put targets up not at the equator, but real dang close, a thousand yards away to the west and a thousand yards away to the east, and they've shot both targets. And the group size, it's it's within the group size, right? So, you know, there's going to be some scientist out there that tells me I'm crazy and gives me the math problem on why I'm wrong. But I haven't met the guy that's honestly good enough to to calculate it in every single time. And basically, what this is is the concept that. You're shooting so far mm -hmm. that while your bullet is in the air, the earth has moved. Yeah. And now the target that you were initially aiming at is in a different location by the time your yeah. bullet gets there. It's closer or further away. It's the same reason that a flight takes longer going to the west than it does coming back to the east or whichever direction it is. Yeah. Like I said, man, when you put bullets on steel... There's a lot of other stuff that matters. <laughs> a lot more. 
How, then, did, how do people learn wind? Wind, I would say the the bullet drop is science. The wind is art. Yeah. Like, you have to have experience. You got to shoot in it. You got to shoot in it. Yeah, like yesterday, or was it yesterday? Yeah, yeah. yesterday. I, I made... Day before yesterday. Day before yesterday, that's right. Like, Patrick had his goat out there, and we had the Kestrel. This goat was 327 yards away, and... uh we had the kestrel, and if you put the kestrel over the, the cliff that we were laying on, it was reading between 22 and 30 miles an hour of wind. And I'm looking at it, and, like, I'm running through the numbers, and we had we were watching the goat for quite a while. Finally, I'm like, dude, I'm like, it's a center hold. Like, it's coming right at us. And I couldn't tell you – I could tell you what my thought process was, but I couldn't prove any of it. Yeah. And he put that bullet – he aimed right in the middle of that goat and put that bullet in the perfect spot. And in a, but it was probably, it died down. It was probably a 20 mile an hour wind at that point. It was a center hold. Yeah. And I don't think that you can do, make that call without having shot a lot of bullets in wind. So a Kestrel can tell you what the wind is doing where you are. Yeah. Which, but to tell what the wind is doing between you and the target, you need optics and intuition. Yep. And so the way to use a Kestrel you know, you'll see a lot of guys, and especially on TV, they pull the Kestrel up and they point it to the wind and they lay down and they put a, pull, a hold on there and shoot. That might work in some flat grassland in the Midwest where you've got a sustained 35-mile-an-hour wind that is just constant out of one direction. But what uh, air moves like water. So, you know, where we were, you've got multiple cliff faces, and that 30-mile-an-hour wind that was where we were was realistically only where we were. Because the water, the air was coming in like water hitting that cliff face, and it was compounding and shooting up out of that valley. Um, and the way you use any type of wind meter is from the moment that you hit the ground in wherever it is you think you're going to shoot. Whenever the wind blows, you pull that thing out, and you see what the velocity of the wind is, and then you start looking at your environment. And you look at the trees, and you're like, okay, in a 6-mile-an-hour wind, this tree does this. In a 12-mile-an-hour wind, this grass does this. And you start making those little correlations as you go through your day so that when you're in that moment and you look through those binos, you're like, oh, look at that tree doing the same thing. At that tree, that wind is 8 miles an hour probably. And then you just start eliminating as many variables as you can, and you make the best guess you can in the margin of error that you deem acceptable, and you send that sucker out there and hope it's good enough yeah but hope is not a course of action and when we're dealing with an animal's life you are taking all of the data and all the experience that you can bring to bear and making a decision based on that yeah yeah uh, and and people people don't appreciate how hard that stuff is you know i see these guys on tv making these shots out at a thousand yards man I know what it takes to do that, and there's no way you can do that stuff consistently. Yeah. And anybody that wants to argue will go to a range and will shoot because I've seen those guys that make those shots not hit the berm at sure. that distance. You know, um, I I love these laser beam bullets, these high BC bullets, as much or more than just about anybody. Yeah. But I also really love shooting a 308 when it's windy. Because That's when you learn. You the, And Peter Howell is a great person to talk about this. The 308 will teach you um, because it is slow and it's a bullet that gets 
very much affected by the wind, but it's still capable of going out there and hitting a target. Yeah. So go get yourself a 308 that the ammo is pretty affordable for and learn what the wind does. There's a reason that competitions are shot with 308s. It's not because it's easy to shoot them. It's because it's hard to shoot them, and it provides the biggest gap between people. Yep. You know, you see a lot of guys, or I've talked to a lot of guys, and they're like, oh, they, they use this in Palmer. They, like, the reason that they're using that stuff is because it's the most difficult cartridge to shoot. Mm-hmm. And it provides the point gap that you need in a competition to evaluate people. Like, you know, you you can miss the wind on a 6-millimeter bullet going 3,000 feet a second and still be okay. Yeah. So, I, you know, I love to practice with a 308. I love to hunt with a 7mm. Yep. Yep. And, you know, it, it affords me some things that the 308 does not offer but otherwise they're they're a fairly similar deal yeah it's just uh you know one of them's gonna buck the wind a little bit better yeah when i when i shoot competitions and stuff like that i uh you know i use whatever is appropriate but when i go hunting i use the highest bc bullet going the fastest that i can get my hands on because i want i want that bullet to go exactly where i want i don't want to ever wound an animal and that's one thing. That, another thing that gets overlooked all the time is bullets. Mm. Guys do not, like, bullet design is incredibly important. And they're not all equal. And you need to take a bullet that's going out there to do what you want it to do. And and do not skimp on ammo. Buy the best stuff that you can buy. Yep. And just because you're hitting the target, like, that's just external ballistics. Right. Yeah, right. what it does on the inside is what I care about. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a lot of match bullets that are great on steel and great on paper and do not perform well on game. No. And they can perform well on game. But don't let that convince you that that is now the great bullet to shoot. No. I, I had a guy, he was like, I sh- all I shoot's 175 Sierra Match Kings. If, you know, that's, if it's good enough for Army snipers, it's good enough for me. I'm like, well, Army snipers wouldn't be using that if they had the choice, like that's <laughs> what they, that's what they have to use, you know? And the reason that it worked well on the animal that he uses as an example is because it hit the rib on the inside on the, on the, the near side and it yawed that bullet sideways and you had 175 grain match king going through the chest cavity sideways. Yeah. It wasn't because that bullet performed the way it was supposed to. Yeah. Jordan, does wind ever blow in Nebraska? Yeah. A couple of days a year. Yeah, it does. You ever you shoot in the wind? wind? Yes. You like it? Yeah. It can be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I, I love going out on a windy day. Yeah. And my home range is complicated and it, it will trick me. It tricks me all the time because I've got to shoot. I've got to, you know, typically the wind is hitting me in my back at my shooting location and then I've got two opposing crosswinds between myself and the, and the target, depending on the time of day and the weather system that's coming through. And if it's weather wind, it's, you know, big huffle-puffle wind, um, man, it is anybody's guess sometimes. <laughs> and uh, oftentimes I'm shooting by myself, so I'll phone scope the shots in slow motion, um, which is a little bit painful to take a shot, go back, review it, actually find the shot and follow the trace. But that's where you learn is when you can watch – that that trace that vapor trail of the bullet going out it's like ooh, she's drifting right she's drifting left she's coming down it's yeah. good yeah. <laughs> right in the middle nope that one yeah. missed oh uh, yeah and that's you know using that center 60 percent of the available target area is 
if you keep that in mind, it will save you a lot of heartache because, so I think about that, like on these goats, we had like 12, 14 inch circles. So realistically, I needed to know that my bullet was going to land within about eight or nine inches diameter circle. So if I look at that wind and I say, all right, well, the wind is between a 12 and a 15 mile an hour. So I've got three miles an hour of margin of error. So I go in and I figure out how much that three mile an hour of drift is. Okay, well, that's that's three inches. Well, there's three of my eight inches that's eaten up. Well, I'm shooting a gun that's it's a really, I'm, we're shooting that cross. It's under a minute gun. So if I'm my target's at 300 yards, three more inches is eaten up. Now I'm at six inches of my eight inches, right? So I have two inches for my margin of error. So my hold has to be two inches or less. So I have to have a perfect position to shoot that shot. Right. And since your shot is now at 300 yards and change, that margin for error is less than one MOA. Right. So well, I cannot be moving more than one MOA. Right. Yeah. It's got to be a perfect hold. Yeah. And that's how, that's how you get guys that don't, I'm not saying they don't ever miss, like I miss like everybody else, but when it's an animal's life on the line, there's very little doubt that that bullet's going to go, not go exactly where I plan it to go. And anybody that's break that's shooting these real long shots, man, they just, there's no way. No one knows what that wind is doing. I don't think that people realize how much wind affects a bullet. Like, you know, really like get it. Yeah. Cause I was at, I was at the range with one of my buddies and I, I had him shoot my six, five and I gave him a wind hold. It was like 550 yards. I think I gave him a wind hold and he turns around and looks at me and he's like, that's off the target. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I know. I was like, just shoot. And I was just like center. Yeah. Like, he is center. But so if he was at 550 and had shot at the range at 550 and didn't have any wind, then he goes to shoot at an animal, has a little bit of left to right, and will stand to the left, and he hits in the guts. Yeah. Mm. And I, you know, I mean, he was truly like, holy cow, like it was clicked. Like mm-hmm. it clicked. But there's a lot of people that's just not going to click with. Yeah. You know? So this was this was the gun that my wife took on an elk hunt. It was a 6.5 Creedmoor. And at 500 yards, one mile an hour of wind is two inches of drift. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Think about that. One mile, right? And I don't care what anybody says. You cannot call winds in the field closer than two miles an hour. The, the best guy in the world. So if I call it a five, it could be a four or a six, right? Like the more you start getting into stuff, it's a wonder we ever hit anything. But, you know, like it, it's something that cannot be taken lightly or you will clean miss an animal, which, you know, that goat I shot, like I was like, I knew exactly where that bullet went. You know, like exactly where it impacted because I had taken all this stuff into consideration. Like I would be devastated, you know, if that didn't happen, you know, it didn't go right where I wanted it to go. And I feel like maybe people are picturing us in the field with like goggles and pocket protectors and lab coats and laptops. (laughs) And we're like, click, 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 you know, I'm not like that. Okay. I will, I will totally exceed that level of nerdiness back at home. I will. But in the field, I pick up my freaking 
2400 ABS rangefinder that I put five miles per hour of nine o'clock wind into, mm-hmm. and I go bloop, and it <laughs> says my wind hold is one mil, and I go, I think that's ten miles per hour. So I, I'm gonna hold two mils. I'm gonna hold two mils. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and big Cindy's here it goes. Like it's not it's not that hard. We have the tools to make this stuff easy. What we have to do is understand that you have to have the tool. Yeah. And you have to respect the fact that you need the education. Yes. It's, you know, all this, all the equipment and all that stuff, all it does is extends your effective range. But with that range comes responsibility and you're responsible for educating yourself on this new equipment and, and what it actually takes to utilize it to its fullest capabilities. Yep. Well, we can talk about this for a long time. Oh yeah. We're going to talk about it again. Okay. So let's let's bring it back down and say, all right, folks, lessons learned today from Dan Horner. Zero your rifle. Use good ammo. Use good ammo. Zero your rifle. Zero your rifle. Shoot it out at range. Have a position. Have a have a have a process for shoot for your shot when you get in that moment. Have a process for how you're going to actually execute that shot, and then zero your rifle. Get steady. And then zero your rifle. Make sure your rifle's zeroed. Yeah, make sure your rifle's zeroed. That one's pretty important. That one's pretty important. Jordan, what did you learn today? Um, I learned a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> From Dan. Too much, probably. Um, Jordan's fading, fading I'm, in and dude, out. Dude, I am <laughs> so fading. so bad. Uh, um, now, wind matters. Yeah. That's a point I'd like to drive home. <laughs> you got two scoops of wind out where you're at. Yeah, but the thing about uh, Nebraska is it usually blows in one direction. Yeah. It's typically flat enough. I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, like there's some hills and chops and stuff, but it's not usually like big to get like the big updrafts and such. Something I wouldn't I, say. Something I would like people to take away from this is their custom turrets mm-hmm. are only useful in one weather condition. Out. Out past distance, yeah. But inside of 400, if you don't, if you've checked it, be confident in it, is what I would say. Yeah. You know, if you're, I mean, and realistically, the odds that people should be shooting a shot past 400 yards, in my opinion, are, are very small. Right. But, you know, out to 400, you got to do some pretty extreme stuff to really affect enough that you're, there's a lot of other things that affect it a lot more. Be confident in it. And go out there and shoot those guns with those custom turrets on paper at those ranges and figure out what happens. Yep. Prove it. Yeah. Truth it. Truth it. Uh, where can people find out more from the two of you? Jordan dot bud on Instagram. Uh, mine is Daniel dot Horner three gun on Instagram or uh, email at Daniel at do you uh, answer people's emails and messages and stuff like that? Yeah. 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 Uh, now, like, I haven't, when I'm, like, in the woods and stuff, so if I don't get back to you in a day or two, don't don't come after me. But, yeah, I'll get back to you. What about you, Jordan? Yeah, most days. Yeah, I do. Can you tell me anything about, like, some cool places to hunt public land in Nebraska? I will not answer those. <laughs> <laughs> I'm over-answering those. Dude, that's it. You don't get a hold of an outfitter in the area to ask where to go on public land. Lots don't do that, people. Lots of people do that. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Everybody does it. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's frustration. If you're one of my boys, you can do that. Um, I might gar hole you like freaking crazy. Cause I think that's funny. <laughs> not that nice of a person, but, uh, no, if, if you're just reaching out to, uh, to, to a industry professional and you're looking for information, don't ask for a spot, man. That's not, not a cool thing to do. Yeah. Or I would say not to go too crazy, but if you're going to ask about an area, know about the area you're asking about and like road names, drainages, like pick some spots that you think you would want to go and then ask about those spots. I had a guy ask about, he sent me a message or whatever and was asking about mountain lions in Nebraska. They did a, a really limited draw. Only certain people, like they didn't have very many tags. They split it by highway 20. Um, the highway that runs like Northwest corner of the state runs East and West, like right by our house. So the guy said he had a North tag and he was asking about a few, you know, if I knew anybody that would let him go on and, and uh, so he ran a couple of people's places by me that were in the south unit. And I was like, oh, yeah, the, but they live in the south unit and you have a north tag. And he's like, oh, I honestly haven't even looked at a map. And to this day, it just gets my blood boiling. <laughs> I'm just like, are you kidding me? You, like, you want me to just hand you over some of our, some people that I know. Like, you want me to just hand them over to you and let you go on their place and you don't even know where the boundary is for your tag i could go on i won't <laughs> but i could it just makes me so mad well now that we've got don't jordan, be dumb jordan, now that we've got jordan awake <laughs> uh okay thanks, thank you James. guys thanks Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.